Good morning. So I want to know, have you ever prepared and prepared for something only to fail miserably? I remember the buildup to my first wrestling match in sixth grade. That buildup actually started years earlier in fourth grade. I went to see, as a fourth grader, my neighbor Tyler, his high school wrestling match. He was in ninth grade. We were in a big gym. Everyone was cheering. Tyler won his match, and it was this glorious victory surrounded by cheering fans. And when the match was over, I knew I wanted to become a wrestler. So a few years later, I joined the wrestling team in sixth grade, not ninth grade. And the reality was a little different than I envisioned. First, we weren't in a gladiatorial gymnasium. We were in an old cafeteria. Womp womp. And then there was the spandex. <laughs> the skin-tight leotard. It's impossible to prepare yourself for the feeling of wearing spandex in front of everyone who's watching you in the middle of a room. <laughs> Tyler was a high schooler. He had crossed over into manhood. <laughs> and spandex isn't fun at that point either, but it's much better than spandex as a middle schooler. And so when it was my turn to wrestle, I waddled out to the mat in my non-masculine, hairless body. <laughs> Tyler's body was strong. My body was in that prepubescent liminal space between femininity and masculinity. <laughs> so it was the perfect time to be in spandex in front of your friends. I walked into the middle of the match and was meted by an older middle schooler who wanted to end me. How in the world had I thought that I was up to this? I lost the match very quickly, not good, and I got off the mat and cried in my mom's arms. <laughs> that actually wasn't the end of my wrestling career. I went on to win a few matches in sixth grade. I actually made it onto the GAV team, so I didn't only get beat up by middle schoolers, I got beat up by high schoolers too. But then I went on to have a decent, respectable wrestling career in high school. But that first match in sixth grade, I discovered two things. First, wrestling is different than I thought it would be, especially in middle school. It's not glory, it's often humiliation. It's different than I thought it would be. And second, I am not who I thought I was. I was not a strong, powerful man. I was a spandex-wearing, emasculated little boy. <laughs> I was not who I thought I was. And today, we're catching the disciples right before their first wrestling match. They think they know, but they don't know. They thought they were going to fight alongside Jesus like heroes, but Jesus is going to die the humiliated death of a loser. They thought they would be faithful to Jesus, but they would be scattered like terrified sheep. Following Jesus is different than they thought it would be, and they are not believing faithful disciples like they thought they were. How is Jesus going to respond 
to these disciples? How does he interact with them knowing that they aren't ready for what's coming? Let's look and see. So turn to page 902. It should be 902. John 16. We see three movements in this passage. We see what's coming. We see what's changing. And we see what's lacking. What's coming, what's changing, and what's lacking. So what's coming? What's coming is the death and resurrection of Jesus. As Jeremiah pointed out in the children's sermon, the disciples don't understand. They are confused. In chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus says, in a little while you're not going to see me, but then you'll see me. And they started asking each other, what the heck is Jesus talking about? And in verse 19, we see that Jesus knows what they wanted to ask. And I actually thought when I first read this, that this was Jesus being naturally perceptive. But according to New Testament scholar Rod Whitaker and the preeminent and resident scholar Sarah Hall, um, it looks like Jesus is actually miraculously perceiving their thoughts here. He knows that they don't know what's about to happen. So he gives a pregnancy analogy. He says that what the disciples are about to experience is like a birth. There's incredible anguish, but then there's the joy, so much so that the the new birth makes you forget the pain that you endured. And when we were reflecting on this passage earlier this week, one mom said, I still remember (laughs) the anguish. (laughs) Um, And I'm sure that's true. I I can't speak to everyone's experience, all the moms' experience of birth, but Naomi's first birth had some second moments, scary moments. But in her second birth, when our second baby was born, within hours, Naomi was saying, let's do this again. (laughs) Because the joy of new life has incredible power. It doesn't erase the pain, but it does kind of undo it in a sense. So what's coming is anguish that brings forth joy. What's coming is death that's going to bring forth new life. What's coming? What's coming is the death and resurrection of Jesus. So now that we've seen what's coming, what's changing? What will be changing after the death and resurrection of Jesus? What will be changing is their discipleship or their relationship, the disciples' relationship to Jesus and all believers' relationship to Jesus because of the death and resurrection. What's changing is the disciples' relationship to Jesus. First change is they won't be confused. They won't ask questions about the fundamental identity and purpose of Jesus. After the death and resurrection, they'll understand the fullness of who Jesus is and what he came to do. In verse 23, it says, Jesus says, in that day, that is the day after his death and resurrection, Jesus says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. So the Greek for the first half of verse 23 implies that they won't need to ask questions. In other words, Jesus is saying, you won't be confused and say, Jesus, can you explain this to me? As they have been saying before. 
But there's a second change coming. It's not just that they won't be confused. They will be in Christ. They will communicate and petition with God the Father in Jesus' name. Look at the second half of verse 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So we say so often in Jesus' name, amen. But that comes from right here. Let's find out what that precious phrase means. Let's go on to verse 26. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I've come from God. So when we say in Jesus' name, we are remembering how our relationship with God the Father was restored through Jesus' death and resurrection. So on one hand, to say in Jesus' name is an acknowledgement of our complete helplessness and inability to go to God the Father on our own merit. It's a recognition that we dare not approach the throne of God in our own name. Jesus brings us divine life through his death and resurrection. In Jesus' name. Listen to the words of the hymn that we're about to sing at communion. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Our hearts are united with God, but only through the strong and perfect plea of Jesus. So on one hand, to say in Jesus' name is to remember that Jesus saved us from sin and from death. But on the other hand, when we say in Jesus' name, we're also remembering that the Father himself loves us. The Father's love for the world is a theme throughout John. And of course, we've seen it in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But look right here in verse 27. We see the Father himself loves you because you loved Jesus and believed in him. Little Chloe Taylor, Sarah Ma Taylor and Aaron Taylor's daughter, and little David L. Tomey are my daughter's friends. And they really love my daughter Esther. And David is so sensitive and comforting to her. Chloe's face lights up with joy when she sees Esther. And even at a young age, they love her. And they're in for me. That does it, right? <laughs> As Esther's dad, seeing them love Esther, I'm like, you're good. I'll give you anything you want, right? <laughs> if they came and asked, I mean, ask for a car. I mean, don't, but I'll give it to you. We'll find a way, right? When we pour out our meager, little, toddler love for Jesus, 
the God the Father's heart overflows with love for us. Sometimes we think about Jesus mediating our our relationship with the Father, and in our minds, we have the wrong heart posture of God in mind. The Father doesn't sit back with his arms crossed, waiting for you to produce the right theological password, right? It's not like, well, I wasn't listening to you, but I knew that you were going to say in Jesus' name, so... I guess I'm obligated to listen to you. No, the Father himself loves you. Let that sink in. He doesn't listen to you out of obligation. He listens to you out of love. Through Jesus through his death and resurrection, our sin is God, our sin is gone, and we're restored to our loving Father. But the disciples don't fully yet grasp this beautiful truth. They think they do. But Jesus warns them they're about to get a reality check. So we've seen what's coming, the death and resurrection of Jesus. We've seen what's changing. The disciples will be in Christ. Their relationship with God is about to fundamentally change. But now we're going to see what's lacking. What's lacking in the belief of the disciples. So, the disciples do have belief in Jesus. Look at verse 27 again. Jesus says, you have loved me, and you have believed that I've come from God. So, great. The disciples believe. And they say, back in verse 30, we believe that you came from God. But while they have belief, they also have unbelief. Look at Jesus' response. After just acknowledging their belief, Jesus says, do you now believe? (laughs) Behold, an hour is coming and indeed has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. The Father is with me. The disciples' belief is not enough for the tribulation they're about to experience. They have belief, but not enough. And yet, they're going to be united with Christ in his death and resurrection. So they get the victory even though they're about to fail. In verse 33, we see he wants them to have peace in the midst of tribulation. Why? Because he's overcome the world. Listen, church, to be a Christian is to be in that prepubescent liminal space, right? It's to fight battles in spandex with an enemy who wants to end us. We often think that we're actually stronger than we really are, right? We think we believe, but we also have unbelief. But one of the great things about a wrestling meet between two different schools is that you can go to the mat and get utterly destroyed, 
But if the other guys on their, your team win their matches, your whole team can win the meet even if you lose the match. And sometimes it's the case that your teammates have wrestled before you and you're like one of the last guys. So you can wrestle your opponent knowing that no matter if you win or lose, your team is going to win. Guys, we're on Jesus' team. He won. The whole thing is decided. Even if we lose, he's overcome the world. The ultimate pressure is off. The team's win or loss is not on your shoulders. Maybe you've just failed. Maybe you're in a season of life where you're very aware of your unbelief. You're facing tribulation. Maybe you just need to limp off the mat and cry in the arms of the Holy Spirit. You're not quitting. You're recovering. You'll wrestle again. You'll go on to win some and lose some. But you'll go from strength to strength. And one day, you will die. Womp womp. <laughs> but as we remain in Christ, we leave this life and enter into a joyous victory celebration. So recover now. Be comforted and refreshed by the Spirit now. Prepare for the next match now. Keep fighting the wrestling matches that God puts in your path. And then you die and you enter into everlasting victory. Jesus has won. Wrestle in light of eternity. Jesus offers a joy that can't be taken away even if you lose some very painful matches. Take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. In Jesus' name.